Hello and welcome to the Americano podcast, a series of discussions about American politics and now the Joe Biden presidency. We will be looking at how a 78-year-old president will change America and we'll be asking if normalcy, which is what he promised to bring, has returned to American politics. The answer, of course, is no. I'm joined today by Joe Weisendahl, who is co-host of the Odd Lots podcast and What You Miss on Bloomberg TV. And he's also an editor and a wonderful tweeter, if anyone (laughs) wants to follow him at the stalwart is the handle. And we're going to be talking about, it seems, the only story of this week, the only thing that anyone's talking about, which is GameStop and the Wall Street Bets revolution. Now, Joe, I think... I imagine some of our listeners are as financially illiterate as I am. So could you just give us a summary of the story and what you think perhaps a lot of the media are missing about the story? Sure. I mean, there's a lot of different angles to the story. Thanks for having me on, by the way. Very excited. Pleasure. You know, I think it starts with GameStop. Everyone figures is going to be like the blockbuster video that eventually went out of business. And everyone figures, okay, here's this retail store. It's in a lot of strip malls. They sell physical video discs. It's only a matter of time before they go out of business. Consensus view on Wall Street, basically no one questions that premise. It just seems obvious to everyone that its days are numbered. And so there are a number of people who are short the stock, betting against it, assuming that it's only a matter of time before it goes to zero. A few years ago, 2017, 2018, a handful of people online, investors, start to uh, question that premise. They have reason to believe in an argument that the company is not going to zero, that the company will survive. That theory is based on a few different principles. One is they have a lot of cash on the books, so there's no real reason for them to go bankrupt anytime soon. There are opportunities for them to turn to e-commerce and that their e-commerce business might be a little bit better than expected in some way or another. And this idea that the physical store is, unlike with movies, may not be dead for video games in the same way. For one thing, they note that the console makers, the makers of uh, the video game consoles, continue to include and continue to have plans to include physical disk drives in their consoles, which is a suggestion that at least the biggest players in the industry actually do not think that physical disks are going to die. Mm. So they have reason to think that, look, even if the business is not great, they're not the most amazing, exciting company in the world, the consensus is just too negative. And these initial bulls, these initial GameStop optimists, essentially were just of this view that the community on Wall Street who analyzed this company were getting it wrong. It was a contrarian take that they're wrong to be short the company, and they started putting out research. They started writing up their own documents, PDFs, the likes of which one might expect to see published by a bank or a hedge fund. They started making videos, laying out the case, and of course, they started making their case on social media, Reddit, Twitter, and so forth, why they are bullish on GameStop. The trade did not work for a long time, but some of the diehards just continued to believe in it. The stock continued to go down for a long time. Nonetheless, nothing had actually changed their thesis that this business was not going to go bankrupt and that there was true value there. Then, late last year, a fellow named Ryan Cohen, who is the founder of uh, Chewy.com, which is this really big, huge phenomenon, online pet supply company, pet food, pet toys, and so forth, took a stake in the company. And he only owned two other stocks in his portfolio, 
Apple, Wells Fargo, and now GameStop. So this is guy is not a joker, massively successful entrepreneur, very concentrated investor in serious companies. Suddenly that sort of wakes people up to this idea that perhaps it's not just a few internet randos who believe that there might be something to this. Here is one of the most successful internet entrepreneurs of this moment who also believes there is something there to this company. That begins to build some momentum. Okay, that is one leg of the one leg of the story. The next leg of the story is this community of traders, many of them who congregate on this page called Wall Street Bets on Reddit, in which people take very aggressive trades, often by buying call options, and they move in packs. They start getting into it. They start believing the story. There are some charismatic players. There is a uh, guy on Wall Street Bets whose handle is Deep Effing Value. Yeah, I think we can swear we can swear on the podcast. Okay, you can, we can swear on the podcast, but you can guess what it is. Yeah. He also has there's a guy on uh, YouTube who goes by the name the Roaring Kitty. It turns out it's the same person, but that guy is Deep Fucking Value. <laughs> People did not realize for a long time that it was the same person putting out this case. They start getting into it. They get excited about the idea that there is a fundamental story and the potential for a short squeeze because all of these Wall Street traders, when you short a stock, you eventually have to buy the stock back to close out your position. And if a stock starts going up above the level at which they shorted it, they're forced in many cases to buy back. That can drive the price even higher. That is a short squeeze, what you just described. Yes. And so this is something that has existed forever. Short squeezes have been a part of the stock market forever. But what I think is new, you know, they used to be sort of, I think, more engineered by hedge funds. Hedge fund or a professional trader would be aware that some other trader was in a spot where they were heavily short a stock, and they would go long it, specifically with the idea of forcing that other fund to then close out their short and drive the price even higher. Hmm. What I think is new, there's two new dimensions to a modern short squeeze that retail traders can conduct. One is the ability of small traders to coordinate and to move in packs in a way that we haven't seen. And I think social media and message boards play a large part of this. That, you know, you or I couldn't engineer a short squeeze on our own, but if there were 10,000 of us and we all did the same trade, then we become like the buying power of a big hedge fund. And the other sort of new technological invention that makes this even more potent is the rise of trading apps like Robinhood which allow free call option trading. So if you go back to the late 90s during the dot-com bubble, you had to pay pretty big commissions to trade stocks, and no one was really doing options trading. This gets to another really important dimension of the story, which is that there's something called a gamma squeeze. And it's a little bit technical, but I think I can explain it in a way that will help. Yes, please. So we may not, I might not have a lot of cash to buy a share, but I could buy, for without putting up too much cash, make a leveraged bet in the form of a call option. So let's say a stock is trading at $20 a share, and I think it might go up to $100 a share by the end of the year. I can make a bet with my broker by buying a call option that says, if I make a bet, if the stock goes up to $100 a share by the end of the year or some other specified period of time, could be a week, could be a month, could be three years, that I get paid out on this bet. It's not really an investment. It is a true bet. The broker sells me that option. Now, the broker is then at risk of paying me out on that bet if, in fact, the stock does go up to $100 a share. Mm. So the broker is then – they're exposed in a way if the stock goes up. 
a broker doesn't want to be exposed. A broker just wants to be like the bookie at a casino and wants to have all of it balance out. It doesn't want to actually be exposed in a directional manner to a specific security. So what happens is the broker needs to hedge its exposure. And the way it does that is by going out and buying the share itself. So let's say I buy a call option on GameStop. The broker then is exposed in a risky way if GameStop shares go up because it has to then pay me out on a bet. The way it balances its books so that it's not exposed is by going out and buying a share of GameStop. So what that means is me, without much money, I could buy a call option and force a broker more or less. It's not quite that simple, but in a sense, force a broker to then go out and actually buy the stock without me fronting up much cash. So we have a double phenomenon. We have the phenomenon of individual traders congregating on social media doing the trade at once and trading in such a way that we amplify our own buying power by using call options to force the brokers to buy the stock to keep their own book even. This is the potent combination that is totally new and allows these sort of retail short squeeze to exist honestly in a way that is probably unprecedented in nature. I spoke to somebody who works in, in finance yesterday, and he, was, he wasn't saying this definitely was the case, but he was speculating that this sort of activity was quite manic. He called it financial suicide bombing or terrorism, he called it at one point, and he was obviously quite alarmed by it. And I suppose classic economic theory would say that this sort of exuberance that you see about things like this, and of course, with, we see it with cryptocurrency too, yeah. is a sign of a market that might be kind of overheating, spilling out of control. What do you say about that? I think there is definitely something to that. I mean, the way I think about bubbles, manias, exuberance is, you know, it's really hard to know in real time where you are in the cycle. I think the most clear evidence that we're in some sort of mania is just the fact that everyone is talking about the stock market. That's kind of weird. The last time this really happened, I think, was the late 90s. So, you know, you know, it's hard to look at the value of the stock market overall and individual security and say this is going to go up or down. It is not that common to have a moment in which literally everyone is talking about stocks. And so I think that there is something to that, which is that stocks speculation, buying stocks with call options are become such a big part of the culture. Now, obviously, in the last week, it's exploded in a way that none of us have ever seen. This is the only story. But on recent years, and I think it really did get accelerated during the COVID lockdowns, when a lot of people were at home, when a lot of people took up stock speculation, stock trading has become a much bigger part of the culture. So I would probably not characterize it as a terrorism or suicide bombing, but there is a impulse of let's take extreme risks. Yeah. And that is creating a lot of volatility and it's just out in the air. Everyone's talking about it. And there's a, there's a kind of nihilistic element to it. I mean, I know some Wall Street bets, they call it loss porn, where yeah. you just sort of post yeah. and And it's almost you, you get a kick out of the yeah. fact you're losing which is a degenerate gambler myself, yeah. I can sympathize with that. But yeah. I mean, I think there is this, you know, it's become, it's become subsumed in the culture wars now, this yes. story. And people are saying it doesn't matter, you know, losing money doesn't matter. We're poor anyway. We just want to hurt the elites. So I would say there's two things. I mean, I think there is this sort of like a fight club thing where it's like, 
you just want to feel, right? You get punched in the face, but you, you feel something. And so there is this phenomenon of people being just as excited about posting mega losses <laughs> as their mega gains. You know, I think, like, I'm cautious on the stick it to the elite story, only in the sense that sticking it to the elites has been around as old as time. Like, that is a very fun thing to do. Mm. And so I think you do have a lot of people who are like, you know, sort of shoehorning it into their ideologies. And in the U.S. now, we have like people on the left, like AOC, trying to make a story out of it. And people on the right, like Ted Cruz, like every politician who loves the camera is trying to make something this story about them. And everyone wants it. Ah, yes, this is my long held theory. The marketing professor, Scott Galloway, had a tweet thread where he's like, oh, this is because young men aren't having sex. So they're like doing this. But like the point is like. Everyone would love to, like, fit this story into their thing because that's what people do these days. So, like, I'm always, like, kind of, like, cautious about that. When I look at Wall Street bets, there's two things that I, like, come away with. One is a lot of these people are extremely smart. So there is this sort of stereotype. It's like, oh, it's all these, like, high school dropout degenerate gamblers. There's some of that. But there's also a lot of sophisticated analysis. And the reason I, like, mentioned the first investor is, like, they're really good analysis, as good as any other hedge fund research that I've seen, their contrarian case on GameStop. But also a lot of, like, sophisticated options traders who know math really well, who know market structure really well on there. So that's one thing. I think that, like, this characterization is, like, the unwashed masses, probably not, like, a great overall characterization of the board. It's a range. There's doctors, there's lawyers, there's finance professionals who are just on there with a pseudonym. The other thing is, it's just fun. And sticking it to the man narratives are fun. Memes are fun. Jokes are fun. Self-deprecating jokes are fun. Yes. And so, like, I kind of think that rather than, like, big political narratives, I'm more into, like, this looks like a lot of fun. I don't trade personally. I mean, obviously, I can't trade. I'm I'm a financial journalist. I wouldn't do it even if I could. I don't think it just look, you can tell they're having fun. It is no crime of having fun. And it's okay to, in my opinion, for the narrative to not much go beyond that. You can't help but be entertained by like a lot of the posts you see. Of course, people want to join that community. Of course, people like love the idea that like they could make a trade and also stick it to the suits. And so it's like when you have these like columnists, like, oh, this is Tahrir Square and Occupy Wall Street (laughs) and all this stuff. It's like, come on. It's like people having fun. Like, Let's turn down the volume just a little bit for a second. Yes, and I think there's this assumption that if you see someone posting a meme, you assume they're a gamer guy in his underpants. But it could well be, right. as you say, a doctor. I post memes. Yeah. And I, like, <laughs> I work for Bloomberg and I like co-host a cable show. Like, And I love posting memes. <laughs> but the populist element, yeah. if you like, has taken on speed yes. in the last 24, 48 hours yeah. because, because of what's happened with Robin Hood. And do you see that as the elites fighting back? I mean, in a way... If you talk about populism enough, if you talk about culture wars enough, you make these things true. Yeah, and look, I do think that 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 is like, it's a really fun story. It is true that there are some big hedge funds that are losing a lot of money on this. There's no doubt, like the thought of like someone being at home on their phone, being part of a trade that causes hedge funds to lose money. You know, the masters of the universe, as they were called not too long ago. How is that not an incredibly, like, fun thing for someone to, with a few thousand dollars, to, like, want to be part of? We know that, for example, like, Steve Cohen's 0.72, 
the owner of the Mets, he's one of you know probably one of the most successful long short equity hedge fund managers, having a brutal January. The allure of like being on the other side of the trade of him and for your buying power to like be causing him problems, irresistible. Who wouldn't want to be part of that? But is it also a, a sort of growing sense that since 2008, the financial system has essentially been an unfair game? I mean, it's always been an unfair game, but it's it's now almost a game where the the people at the top can't lose. Yeah. And that now the now the masses are getting in on that. Market manipulation, short sweet games like that's always been part of it, and the the people at the top have been like playing with the market for a long time. That's always been a thing, and you know I remember for much of my career. It's kind of faded a little bit, but for a long time, there was a big phenomenon where a hedge fund manager would either take a long or short position and disclose it in a big 200-page slide deck to an elite group of people inside a conference room, and the word would get out. And by the time the average person heard about it, the stock had already moved 5% because everyone was already trading while they heard it. And of course, the hedge fund manager had executed the trade prior to them even doing it. There have always been games. On the other hand... And again, I know it's a very uncool sentiment, but I'm just going to say it. We live in an age of free trading and index ETFs and ability to invest in a market with not just low fees, but very few opportunities for the brokerages or hedge funds to profit. So you have brokerages. It hasn't been a good business for a long time because there is less trading. Hedge funds have not – they had a terrible last decade. So all these like masters of the universe, so many people just sort of like – putting their money in 401ks or buying an S&P 500 index fund. If the fish aren't swimming or playing games, that doesn't create many opportunities for the sharks. And so this has not been like some amazing time. Yes, markets have generally essentially marched higher in a straight line since 2009 and even more sort of a steeper line since March 2020 when the COVID bottom hit. But from a sort of like classic sense of like the elites versus everyone else, like this has not been a great decade for hedge fund performance relative to if you had just bought an S&P 500 index fund, or just put it this way, the opportunities to have made big gains with low fees and low opportunities for people to exploit you. I would argue over the last 10 years, it's actually never been better. Again, people don't want to, like, it's not a fun narrative and there are other ways, like, you know, Elites have done extremely well. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. But from a sort of pure market potential, you know, I get it, like anger, the bailouts, all kinds of reasons to be angry at the elite, many of which I share. But from like a pure markets game, a gamesmanship potential, I don't think like the last decade has been characterized as some particularly awful period of insiders in the market exploiting retail. If anything, the opportunities to do that have gone down. People talk a lot about disruption and, you know, all industries have had it from to some extent because of the internet. Yeah. Media's had it pretty bad. But, I mean, are we now just seeing the disruption of, of financial services? Yeah, I mean, I, I think absolutely. And there are many different, I guess, ways that disruption is happening. So for one, okay, free trading, that's new. I mean, that used to be a huge profit center. Trading stocks used to be massively profitable. That has been slowly grinding down. The ability to have a sophisticated, diversified basket of investments, fees aside, has never been more available. So if you even like the thought of like investing in an index, which is not a bad idea by and large, that used to be something impossible for the average person to do. What are you going to do? Like go out and buy 
the 500 different equities of the S&P 500 on your own and rebalance them at the end of every day. It was an impossible thing to execute. So even something like the lowly index fund, which, you know, in 2021 is probably too boring for a lot of people, actually used to be a sophisticated thing, now very easily available to anyone. Research. You know, there used to be a sort of monopoly on information. That's not really there. Like the ability to learn about a business, there's so many, take Substacks, for example, all these newsletters. What you can learn about companies and businesses and industries on social media and newsletters rivals the best bank research, in my opinion, many times. So they used to have this, you know, only the bank got to really speak to the company management and only clients of the bank, therefore, really had visibility into how the business was doing. That's been disrupted. The ability to, like, really learn about how an industry is doing more or less for free on the Internet, another form of disruption. So I do think that, like, there are all these sort of avenues in which traditional finance is being disrupted, including the ability to push markets around sort of aggressively, which used to be something that there was kind of no way to do that prior to the sort of, like, herd coordination that you could see on social media. And are we getting to a stage where, you know, a stock like GameStop, it's not related to its value as a share at all. It's like it would be yeah. like a cryptocurrency. Yeah. It's just something I that people speculate on. I think on. it is like that at this point, which is like, you know, I was thinking about, you know, and I don't like to get too philosophical about this stuff. But obviously, on like Reddit, you have all these people like posting memes about the stock. But then you get to a point where the stock trading itself becomes the meme. Yeah. And that becomes the joke. And it's fun to just do the trade itself. And you don't even have to like. That becomes the story, and I think like that's how like a cryptocurrency wills itself into existence. You have this thing that critics kind of rightfully say there's no underlying value, <laughs> but if everyone just decides there's underlying value because it's really fun to own it and buy it, and they all agree that they're going to keep doing that, can sort of stay in this sort of suspended animation for a while. Now, like I don't want to like say like GameStop as a company is going to be worth twenty billion dollars for very long. I don't know. But I think that is exactly right, where this sort of like the trading of the asset itself becomes the story and it sort of wills itself into value that, you know, it doesn't make any sense. It should be worth only $10 a share. But because people all just we're all just going to agree that it's, you know, it's like a joke, like on Twitter, it's like a joke doesn't have to be funny. But if everyone just keeps repeating, it kind of becomes funny <laughs> and it gets funnier even. Yeah. Then why can't it happen with a stock? It's weird. But it feels like it could stay, you know, why can't it? I don't know. And is this going to be the future then, sort of ironic shares becoming stores yeah. of value? Well, let's put it this way. I don't know if it's going to become the future, but we can't discount the possibility that it will. Yeah. And we can't discount the possibility that any other stock currently in existence, especially if it's cheap, especially if we can attach a good story to it, could go from one to 100 in a matter of days. The way I keep thinking about it, and I wrote a piece I contributed to a newsletter, is like Black Monday, the stock market crashed in 1987. The Dow fell 22% in a single day. Yeah. And that permanently changed the market from then on. Because once people became, came to the realization that it was even possible for the stock market to crash so much in a single day, you would never discount that possibility again happening in the future. And so everything sort of changed after that day. Once you see a sort of like left for dead stock become one of the biggest stocks day after day after day, we can never again dismiss the possibility that that could happen with any other stock. It's going to be rare, but it might change things forever. This is what you call an up crash. This is what yeah, you, an up yeah. crash, yeah. It's, like, it's weird because you have this huge rally, 
And yet you have the SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission coming out saying we're, like, we're monitoring volatility. You have these big hedge funds taking big losses. When has this ever happened with a stock market rallying before that it's caused so much <laughs> alarm? So even though it's up, it almost feels like a crash. It's almost like a crash is almost the more familiar metaphor or the more familiar thing that we're used to sensationally with a move like this. Well, the Bud administration has said they're going to they're going to be watching this very closely, yeah. and and I don't know what they're going to do. Well, I mean, what can they do? Could we see more regulation? Would be the obvious thing, a licensing perhaps for anyone who wants to buy or sell shares. Do you think any of those are feasible? I guess so. It's not obvious to me. Like, I don't think anyone is like, I don't think any of like the traders like broken any laws or anything like that. And people who say that, I think it's total nonsense. You know, you could imagine limits on margin. You could imagine some sort of like curbs on open options positions. The financial community also kind of self-regulates. And so there's this controversy I know that started yesterday or the day before. This week has really been a blur for me <laughs> where the popular app Robinhood had to curb some of the trading and everyone had this nefarious conspiracy theory. It's like, oh, did the shorts get to them and tell them to stop? And I don't think that's what happened. There's no evidence that that's what happened. The simpler story is that Robinhood's own counterparties, its own brokerages and banks were basically like, and I don't know, we don't know the details exactly, but basically we're like, well, your clients are taking some serious risks. And if this blows up, you're going to lose a lot of money. So we'd like you to like, cur you know, you have to either front us more cash or curb speculation because if this blows up, you're going to be on the hook for a lot of money. Yeah. And so like you might have a situation in which just the dealers themselves, the banks, the brokerages in order to put in some curbs. So that could happen just out of sort of self-preservation, not to protect the shorts per se, but protect themselves because if a stock runs up like crazy and a bunch of people make leveraged bets against it, then it goes down and those people go bankrupt and then they're on the hook. So there may be natural curbs that don't require government regulation or don't, yeah. So that would be, for my simplistic gambler understanding, that would be that it would be like a bookmaker realizing that he's offering a bet that could yeah. lose him a lot of money, so he just stops offering it. Yeah, exactly yeah. right. Or the bookmaker's bank. Yes. You know, the bookmaker's <laughs> More a bank. Likely, yeah. And that's kind of like the way I think it's like, the bookmaker, if they're like, wow, that's really crazy you're offering that, you know. And I don't know much about, like, the bookmaker business, but they're always, like, offering, like, these sort of, like, fun teaser bets, things like that I'm aware of. If they just kept doing that, yeah. eventually their bank might be like, maybe hold off because if one of these pays off, you're going to get in trouble. You know, it's like sometimes, like, you think about, like, those things where it's like if a comet falls and it lands on this tiny island in the Samoa, we're going to, like, pay out thousand dollars to every one of our clients like sometimes they pull these stunts you know or whatever yeah. but eventually like you could imagine where it's like maybe hold off on the uh, the entertainment because <laughs> this might actually happen and you might actually get in trouble <laughs> well joe thank you so much for coming on thank it's you. been an honor to to have yeah, you on I've this podcast i've been a big fan of yours for a long time so i really appreciate you reaching well, out ditto all the best and enjoy this strange financial yeah. apocalypse thanks <laughs>